Blog Talk Radio. I just love that opening, Chris Martin of Coldplay. I used to, you know, rule the world, and now I uh, sweep the streets I used to roam. It's kind of a metaphor for what's happening in medicine. Welcome, everyone. This is ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters. We're coming to you today from San Diego, California, on Wednesday, July the 27th, 2011. On today's broadcast, I'm just very, very stoked, as we say in California, to have the opportunity to chat with a fellow health tweet, Benjamin F. Miller, PsyD. Now, that's a doctorate in professional psychology. Dr. Miller is known on Twitter as at Miller, the number seven. Dr. Miller is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and associate director of primary care outreach and research at the University of Colorado Depression Center at the CU School of Medicine. Dr. Miller is also the Administrative Director of the Collaborative Care Research Network, CCRN, and a Senior Scientist at the AAFP National Research Network. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you could join us on this busy day in Colorado as we speak. The Colorado Health Symposium is uh, uh, in day one of its session, and I've been following that tweet stream this morning, and it's just been uh, actually the live stream that they have. It's just been an awesome program. So uh, my chat with Ben today is a continuing uh, attestation of the power of the social medium known as Twitter. Ben and my paths have crossed as occasional contributors to Twitter's prolific conversations centering on social media and healthcare, but more specifically, primary care medical homes, accountable care, ACOs, or the more global conversations centering on health policy and reform. So, Ben, first up, tell us a little bit about you as a clinical psychologist from an academic department of family medicine in the midst of the ACO and medical home conversation. What can we read into this collaborative commitment? Anything? Excellent. Oh, yeah, lots to read in here. Well, first of all, let me just describe who I am because I think by doing so, you'll hear a little bit about the story that I see unfolding within health policy nationally. Uh, I describe myself as a hybrid of sorts. I'm trained as a mental health provider, but yet I've only worked in settings that are very atypical for mental health providers, primary care being the, the most obvious of that. Uh, trained in primary care, working as a mental health provider in primary care, you see a lot of things. And one of the things that I think you see more often than not is what we talk about in health policy land, but you actually get to experience it and witness it when you're on the front lines delivering clinical care, and that's fragmentation. Uh, There is nowhere that fragmentation is seen more often than in the divide between mental health and physical health. And so I hope that our conversation today will shed some light on that, talk a little bit about ways that we can be more efficient in our healthcare delivery as well as more clinically effective. So I describe myself as that hybrid because it's not just traditional mental health settings that as a a trained mental health provider I have operated in, it's those primary care settings. What happened after doing some work in primary care and looking at some of the literature and some of the evidence, uh, it quickly came to pass in my mind that we needed to have 
more policy discussions on why mental health is not more centrally involved in some of the national conversations around health reform. Now, sure, we have things like mental health parity that I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into just a little bit later. But really, when we talk about accountable care organizations, or we talk about the patient-centered medical home or advanced primary care or whatever the, the language is you choose to describe these efforts, where is mental health there? And so I have made it part of my mission and part of the goal of uh, the work I do in the Department of Family Medicine to advance mental health's role, to advance the discussion and the dialogue around mental health being more included and better integrated within any discussions that we have nationally around health reform. So I describe myself as that anomaly. I'm also trained as a clinician who's doing research and policy work. And uh, some of the clinicians that I work with, they are very good at this. They're very good at making the case. And we need more of us out there kind of raising the banner on what change looks like, what we see in our day-to-day -day clinical settings, and how we can research it better to make a stronger case that we should be integrating that when you do integrate, things just tend to be better for not only yourself clinically, but also the community who doesn't see health as fragmented as healthcare currently is operating under. So let's start like where you are, which is an academic mm -hmm. setting. And in an mm -hmm. academic setting, you have this tripartite mission, research, teaching, uh, and clinical service. Uh, how is that being received now on the, um, I guess the research component is, is drawing you into the theater of uh, comparative effectiveness research and evidence-based medicine, so it's, it's, it's proactive there. But how is that being received at your institution? Is, is, it, is it embraced or is it viewed more traditionally with that, uh, hey, we, we publish and perish, that's our mission? <laughs> Well, definitely there's an academic vibe to everything that we do, and Publisher Parish is on almost any academic's bumper sticker on the back of their car. It's something that we do to get the information out there to the folks that want to read it and learn a little bit more about it. However, as you highlighted at the top of the hour here, social media is arguably one of the uh, other ways that we can disseminate a message that isn't necessarily a quote-unquote publication. Uh, I am very well supported in my department, and we have made it our mission as a department to change practice. I mean, if you wanted to look at the bumper sticker of the Department of Family Medicine, it's that, change practice. The way the practice is currently delivered, as, we, as I already mentioned, is you know, relatively fragmented. There are things that we can do to make it defragmented and to better integrate. Uh, the research arm of this is fascinating. So uh, I mentioned that I got into this a little bit through the research. I want to be able to provide more evidentiary support for why integrating mental health into primary care, into medical homes, into ACOs should be the standard and not the exception. And if you look at the literature over the past several years, a couple of decades now, uh, I'll highlight one report in particular in that uh, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in 2008 released a systematic review of the evidence supporting mental health integration into primary care. They had 33 studies that made the inclusion criteria. Of those 33, 26 of those focused solely on depression. And what that tells me is that, you know, a lot of studies have been done examining the impact on um, integrating mental health into primary care on depression, but what about other health conditions? Now, sometimes you look at comorbid, or as we like to say, multimorbid conditions, and the impact that a mental health provider can play on those conditions as well, but most of the research concluded that, you know, we can do depression treatment really well when you integrate. So I saw this as a challenge. I wanted to be able to make the case that mental health providers being better integrated can do much more than just treat depression, but also treat anxiety, other mental health conditions, and expand beyond that to chronic disease management, to health behavior change, 
to words that we're not necessarily trained to use, but we need to know them, prevention. All of that is a, a, a integrated, I would say, for lack of a better term, into the, the dialogue that we're having currently around healthcare policy. When we can become more comprehensive in our delivery of services, and we can research that to make the case through the evidence, now we're talking about being able to have the evidence to help change policy. But it doesn't stop at just the clinical. And this is one message that I like to say loud and clear here. If we just collect clinical data and we just look at the clinical outcomes and we just simply say we were able to improve health, that's insufficient. Uh, I have a good colleague and friend at, at the University of Minnesota, Dr. C.J. Peake, who's written for years about the need. If you're going to change healthcare, you've got to do it in three worlds simultaneously, clinical, operational, and financial. So the research that we do takes into account all three of those worlds. It is not simply doing another study to demonstrate that you can positively impact on depression. It's not just clinical. It's not just doing a study that shows you maybe a better light of streamline your workflow so that operationally you have integrated a new component into healthcare that maybe then has an impact on clinical. It's not just that. It's also taking into account the financial piece. And this is, again, where you know, policy wonks tend to listen, you know, their, their ears turn up a little bit and they kind of cock an eyebrow and they say, okay, where's it going with this? But it's the financing of this and how much things cost, the economic analysis, making that business case that I don't think has necessarily been done to support that integration, which is part of the reason that I do the work that I do. So we address that research simultaneously in clinical, operational, and financial. Going okay. back to your initial question. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, so let me ask you about that. So, um, how does uh, the integration, clinical, financial, operational, how does it uh, collaborate to move that football forward? Tell us a little bit about what you've learned. Well, one of the first things we learned is that we have a tremendous language problem in describing what it actually means when you, quote, unquote, integrate. Uh, we were awarded a grant from the uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ARC, a couple of years ago to establish a research agenda, basically building out on those three worlds, clinical, operational, and financial. And when we sat down with the folks who were the national leaders in research, in mental health, in primary care, and we started having a dialogue on what do we need to do to move this forward, what's the research agenda, immediately the first thing that we saw as a problem was that everybody was using different language. You'll see a nice parallel here with the ACO world in just a second. But we, we, some person would describe it as integrated care. When we're talking about better integrating mental health, we're talking about integrated care. And then someone else would raise their hand and they say, you know what, I, I get what you're saying, and you're describing what I think we do, but we call it collaborative care. And then sure enough, someone else would raise their hand and they say, you know what, we don't call it either one of those things. We call it uh, integrated comprehensive primary care. <laughs> and so the language was failing us. And therefore, when you want to pose a research question, one of the first things you have to do is consist have consistent language. So if we had no consistency in a group of stakeholders who were the experts in this field, how are we going to have consistency when it came to working on policy? And here's a scenario. Uh, you and I, Greg, we go and talk to a policymaker A. I walk in first and I say, you know what, I know a way that you can save money and provide more effective care. It's called integrated care. Here's what it means. You walk in and you say, you know what, I got a way that you can save money, improve outcomes, and you'll meet the needs of the community. Everybody will love you forever and reelect you for years to come. It's called collaborative care. That policymaker just heard the same message called two different things. So what are they to do? You have a problem there. It's a fundamental problem. That is where we have to begin any discussion around research, around policy with 
where's our language? Are we using language consistently? The accountable care organizations is a great example of that. Uh, as a construct, I think most people can understand what it's trying to get at. But then I guarantee if we were to start talking about how do you describe an ACO? How do you describe an ACO? Well, I've got one in my backyard here in Colorado in Grand Junction. I can tell you a lot about it. But is that the same as one in another state? Probably not. Language will fail there. So I would say that's one of the first places to start. So we've got really a global definitional problem because once you've seen one, quote, integrated model, you've seen one, quote, integrated model. Precisely. And how about so if, if you, you throw to... in the mental health piece? Doesn't that even expand it even even further? Oh, definitely. So in my own field, if we start talking about mental health, that means one thing to one person. Uh, behavioral health is also used. Behavioral health being more uh, inclusive, which most people say that if you say behavioral health, you're including substance abuse or substance use in that category. It's it's very it's just as fragmented sometimes within the mental health community as it is with in healthcare at large. So we have to be careful in what we mean by that. And so if you're if you're working again on policy and you're trying to collect evidence to support a policy, that language is preeminent. Getting that straight, figuring that one out from the get go, having a team that can then measure what it is that you're defining is critical. And I believe that, unfortunately, there's a lot of great attempts now that we see nationally to integrate, whether it be mental health, oral health, reproductive care, integrate some type of services. Their nomenclature, their lexicon, is one of the areas that they fail because they simply don't have a way to consistently describe that. So if you saw it in one state and you wanted to replicate it, what if language is the biggest barrier for replication? So to close out this thought, in order to complete that research agenda that we uh, told ARC that we were going to do, we had to create a lexicon. Uh, this is published online. I'll send the link out through Twitter in just a minute. Uh, but we had a lexicon that was worked on by, uh, again, Dr. Peek out of Minnesota, who used a methodology to develop consistent language so that we can then study it. That lexicon really... After subsequent to developing the lexicon, we were able to then have a consistent dialogue around our research agenda. And then we could take it a step further, and we could propose specific metrics that people use when they wanted to evaluate or measure integration, all based upon the consistent use of language. Uh, this document was published last week from ARC, and uh, we're hoping that people will look at it and we'll try and assimilate some of the message there and take forward what we're, we hope is a, a very positive and in some ways radical first step in moving integration into policy circles. So t talk a moment about integration from the point of view of um, uh, you're in a department of family medicine, mm -hmm. uh, you're a clinical psychologist, the mental health team broadly inclusive of even chemical dependency counselors, if you sort of redefine it in terms of behavioral health. Where's the psychiatrist in this? Is it direct relationship between the psychologist and the primary care doctor? You know, how does that play out? Any any thoughts? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. So, again, being in a traditional academic environment, we have departments. So uh, I think it's been classified before, and people have said this better than I, but you know, most people have problems. Academic medical schools have departments. And departments in some ways um, really allow the professional who is uh, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a family doc, whatever your respective degree is, to thrive amongst your peers. 
Uh, we collaborate with our Department of Psychiatry. You mentioned at the onset of the show, uh, I work in the Depression Center. That is in a Department of Psychiatry. We've had psychiatrists that have rotated through our primary care clinic. Uh, as a mental health provider, as a psychologist working in a Department of Family Medicine, what I was charged with when I was brought into this department, again, being a non-physician in a physician department, was to integrate mental health across all three of our core mission areas, which you mentioned too, so research, education, and clinical. That is very well received, and in part because of the visionary leadership that we have in our department. Uh, Colorado is an anomaly in so many different ways. I, I think one of the beauties of, of Colorado is that we have leaders, uh, and I will point out specifically in my department, who are on the IOM, who are just as easy to be seen at an IOM meeting as they are to be in a community meeting talking about ways to better integrate care in Park Hill in Denver, Colorado. This is where we succeed. We're out there in the community listening. We're engaged in what's happening on the ground. We're not in the ivory tower that's isolated and not aware of what's happening out there in the community. As I take this call, I am in our, one of our residency clinics where we just had a two-and-a-half-hour meeting about the expansion of our clinical psychology postdoc program into this clinic. So we are trying to teach the future providers in this healthcare system, future psychologists, future family medicine docs, what it's like to work in a team. So that when they emerge into the, the fragmented, broken system, they see that, hey, you know what? I was trained a different way than how I'm expected to operate. This isn't cool. How can we change this? They begin to expect different from their healthcare system. So we want to train the providers for the system that we want, not the system that we have. That is a key component of why our department has integrated people like myself into a very non-traditional mental health environment because we believe that the, the wave of the future for healthcare is multidisciplinary teams operating in tandem, co-located, better integrated, providing comprehensive whole person care. So, great. So what does that then say about medical homes, accountable care, ACOs? Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. Oh, many thoughts on this one. So if primary care is the largest platform of healthcare delivery in the country and more mental health is seen in primary care than anywhere else and the patient-centered medical home is the redesign of primary care, then we need to be having discussions around what mental health looks like in the redesign of primary care vis-a-vis -vis the patient-centered medical home. If we want to expand that out, I'm very simplistic when it comes to policy sometimes, uh, if you think about medical homes, PCMH, as a, a microsystem, and you think about an ACO as a macrosystem, I think that helps see this conversation in a little bit different light. So I want to focus on the micro just for a second. When the four major medical societies got together and agreed upon the joint principles of what a medical home was, there were two that really are highlighted as being uh, apropos for this discussion around mental health. One, care is coordinated and or integrated. Just Google joint principles and you'll see this. Two, whole person orientation, being able to recognize the whole person needs of an individual. So I talk a lot about the medical home since it is so much synonymous with redesigning primary care. You can't talk about primary care, again, ergo the medical home, without talking about mental health. Um, the chairman of my department, Dr. Frank Degree, published in 1996 a, a really seminal report on mental health. And, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but is that mental health and primary care are inseparable. Any attempt to separate the two leads to inferior care. That same mantra applies for the medical home. 
you cannot have any discussion around what a medical home will be, should be, has the potential to become without including the medical home. And again, to, to paraphrase my boss, uh, the medical home without integrating or being more inclusive of mental health fails. We know this. This, this is a, a losing proposition for everyone involved if the conversations around the medical home don't include mental health. Now, you can expand that out to ACOs now. If the, the hub of the wheel for an ACO is robust primary care, robust medical homes, and you failed to get it right at the beginning with being inclusive of mental health, what does that say about your ACO? Is it really meeting the needs of your community? Or is it really, again, only perpetuating maybe 90% comprehensiveness and there's still 10% fragmentation? So, so, so let me ask you this. I, I'm loving what you're saying. So th those joint principles are released by the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Physicians, and the American Osteopathic Association, at least on the website here, February of 2007. Have they mainstreamed yet? <laughs> well, if you look at uh, – a great question, Greg. Yeah. If you look at – the NCQA, let's pick on one, um, one group. So if you look at NCQA and the criteria for becoming a medical home, according to NCQA, uh, National Committee for Quality Assurance, uh, arguably the most often used uh, criteria for becoming a PCMH, level one, two, or three. You can also Google them and see. You'll find that the, the principles and the uh, standards that were developed for the medical home initially really weren't that inclusive of mental health. The 2011 standards that have recently been released are a little more inclusive. Now, they are nowhere near where we think they should be, but it's a first step. It's a first step. So if a practice decides to take on as one of its priority conditions depression, that's a great thing. To me, that says they're going to see the need for being able to have an on-site mental health provider to assist with depression care. That's just one avenue that we can go by. So the joint principles are, again, they're aspirational. They're principles. And, I, and it goes back to my language piece. I think in part you see principles emerging out of those four major medical societies because it's really hard to nail down a very hardcore definition of what a medical home is or should be. It's like um, parsing terms, or it's, it's a little bit like describing models versus strategies. And we're big on this in the, the whole mental health integration world. You know, I can tell you, I can describe half a dozen models for you, but if I gave you one of those models and I said, hey, Greg, go do this model, it's going to look really different in California than it is in Colorado. So, therefore, what if I gave you strategies? You know, here are strategies that we found to be successful in Colorado. Could you take some of these strategies? Could you adopt them out in California? Could you see if this worked better for you then? It's less dogmatic. It's a little more flexible, and it allows for you to listen to the, that community. Now, recently, uh, there has been discussion and the drafting of what we call behavioral health joint principles of the PCMH. Uh, these are currently out there. They're being reviewed by some medical societies, uh, like those that you've mentioned already for the, the joint principles of PCMH. Uh, the Society of Teachers of Medicine has spearheaded this effort, SPFM, to look at if we want to talk more inclusively about mental health or behavioral health within the medical home, what would those joint principles look like? So we developed a draft of those joint principles that we think really are analogous to the joint principles that have already been created around the PCMH. We just made them much more inclusive of behavioral health. So these are conversations that are happening daily. Uh, this is on a lot of people's radar. This is not going to go away anytime soon because we know the prevalence of behavioral health issues in primary care. 
We know the fact that most people who have those conditions aren't having their needs met. We know the cost of what happens when you avoid addressing this. And again, if cost is our lowest common denominator for ACOs, people are going to be paying attention to this stuff. And we know that when you better integrate, you can lower cost. You can have better health outcomes. And then one of my favorite things is that people like it better. Providers and patients, they like it better when care is comprehensive. So if I'm designing my dream ACO and I'm thinking about what this is going to look like, I think one of those first questions that I want to answer is, does the community like what we're doing? Is it meeting their needs? Is their health improved because of what we have done? Or is the answer to the question, well, you know what? We maintain the status quo really well, and people weren't really happy about that. There's an opportunity here to disrupt and innovate simultaneously. And I'll just say that uh, five to eight years ago, gaining that pulse, i.e., does the community like what we were doing, was a relatively expensive proposition, whereas today, <laughs> slam dunk. You know, social media yep. makes that much more tangible, much more real-time. So one, one thought was um, um, I don't think anyone – could argue with a straight face that primary care isn't at the core of any health system. Um, what's, do you have some numbers on the percent of a primary care practice that could basically fall under either behavioral health or mental health services? That's a great question. I don't think that we have a comprehensive um, place that I can send you to that says of the primary care practices that are currently in existence in the country, uh, X number have on-site mental health. I mean, we can start to piece this together a little bit, and there's some rudimentary ways that you can get a access to this. So for the, at a minimum, if we look at family medicine departments in the country, those that have residencies, that's a primary care delivery setting. We know that according to ACGME requirements, family medicine residents need to have a behavioral science curriculum, kind of, which is, uh, again, analogous to on-site mental health. Now, they may not be doing direct clinical provision, but they have at least access to a mental health, behavioral health provider. You can look at that. that that's a very rudimentary way, as I say. You can look at FQHCs, and you can uh, probably find out through uh, the National Association of Community Health Centers what percentage of FQHCs that are out there have on-site mental health. You can find answers to these things, and then you can start to piece them together and say, well, we know that 12% of primary care practitioners have on-site mental health. Uh, unfortunately, I think that if we did this activity and went through this exercise, uh, both you and I would feel pretty despondent and depressed. It's not going to be at the level that we would like it to be. It's simply just not going to be there. And this is in part because we are trained to operate in silos. If we were trained to operate in teams and we were trained to operate in one another's settings, it would be a lot easier to say, oh, I have a provider that's perfect for you in primary care, a mental health provider that's perfect for you in primary care. But training and education programs continue to perpetuate fragmentation because they, again, they train folks to operate in this healthcare system that we currently have. They train them on following the dollars. So if I'm a, I get paid out of a different pot of money than my primary care brethren. So if I go and I see a patient in primary care and I see them for a mental health condition, that's coming out of a different pot of money. If I'm a primary care provider, that money is separate from the mental health money. So uh, a colleague of mine has described this as, as long as we have two pots of money, we will always have fragmented and non-integrated or disintegrated healthcare. If we have the ability to start to combine funds, to start to combine the way that people are trained, to start to change the community's perception on this, now we are talking about integrating. 
Yeah, and of course, that's one of the central tenets of, of the health reform conversation and the subsequent legislation that followed, which is, you know, more of a population-based focus as opposed to uh, episodic volume or production-oriented silos. Yep. So uh, so earlier, it, it sounded like you were essentially making a case that there's a misalignment between essentially what, what the population needs or wants and what's actually being provided in, in these uh, other than integrated care settings. I remember, I can't remember uh, how long ago, but I think it was a PBS program, Sick Around the World on Frontline, and they were interviewing uh, one of the uh, GPs in the NHS in, in the UK. And uh, he, at least as far as his practice, he estimated 60% of the patients that presented to him presented with mental health issues, you know, <laughs> as opposed mm -hmm. to more traditional, quote, medical, you know, organic medical kinds mm -hmm. of complaints, that there were problems in living, you know. Yep. And then, then more recently, I, I, a, a tweet um, caught my attention a week or so ago, and the title was, Please Listen to What I'm Not Saying. And I went, ooh, wow, there's something there, you know, in terms of our mm -hmm. delivery system, the misalignment, and uh, and perhaps, you know, stepping back to, from the forest to actually see the trees of what's going on. Any, any thoughts there? Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk numbers for a second, just to give you an idea of prevalence here, because I want to make sure that the folks listening to this podcast are aware that this has just not been the agenda here. This is what we see day in and day out. Uh, let me run through a few of these. 80% uh, of the time, folks with a behavioral health disorder will visit primary care at least one time in a calendar year, at least one time. We know that 50% of folks with behavioral health disorders are only seen in primary care, 50%. And we know that somewhere between, and this, this range varies depending on who you ask, but 50 to 70% of all psychotropic medications prescribed are prescribed by primary care providers. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of mental health is not only seen but treated in primary care. Here's the kicker, and this is like pulling the rug out from underneath you right now. You think about this. We have a specialty mental health system that really was created to help take care of the quote-unquote mental health conditions that are out there. There was a survey done in 2009 by a man named uh, Peter Cunningham. It was in Health Affairs. And it looked at it. It surveyed 6,600 primary care physicians, 6,600. Two thirds of those surveyed could not access specialty mental health. And there's several reasons for that. But I think that speaks to the fundamental issue here in that there are several different reasons why integrating makes a lot of sense. There are several different reasons why continuing to perpetuate the status quo doesn't make any sense. I think we can come to some agreement here that primary care, and this has been used, this phrase has been used over and over again, is the de facto mental health system, whether it be due to stigma, insurance, availability or access, people who are seen in primary care for mental health are not going to the referrals to specialty mental health. Sometimes they do, but we know the vast majority don't. And we know even then that if they do go, sometimes there are some other barriers that they must face to be treated in those situations, in those settings, and stigma could be one of those. So it makes sense if you're approaching this from a comprehensive perspective to look at the population prevalence, to meet the community where they're at, and to offer them one-stop shop for health care. So how much of that is due to the mental health parity issue with the general acute care type benefits? 
So I'm glad you asked that question. The survey that I just alluded to of the 6,600 primary care providers was actually in response to mental health parity. They wanted to know if by passing parity it would have any impact on access for patients who are referred from primary care with a mental health condition to mental health. Um, parity really benefits those people that already have insurance for seeking mental health. Um, it doesn't necessarily address the issue around the system. So if the system is still set up to be fragmented and where mental health is not offered in the primary location where more people are being seen for their mental health, what does parity really do for you? So I think it's a great first step. And again, the fact that we have to talk about parity speaks to the dichotomy, the false dichotomy between mind and body. It also speaks, again, to that dichotomy between a mental health system and a physical health system. We've described this in other contexts as almost needing to redefine the fundamental construct of health so that health is viewed as health is viewed as health, not that health is mental or health is physical. It's just that when I say health to you, Greg, you know, well, of course, mental health is included within that. Right. Yeah, no no shortage no shortage of issues. In fact, uh, earlier today, uh, one of the um, comments that uh, uh, piqued my interest was from, I believe, a primary care physician in Denver who I believe was talking about Medicaid book of business, and um, she was saying that there are no participating orthopedists in Denver mm -hmm. that she could actually refer to. You know, so mm -hmm. this capacity issue, this... Uh, you know, uh, gee, I I don't deal with uh, you know I'm I'm a private pay guy or only deal Medicare. I don't deal with Medicaid or uninsured. Uh, that mm -hmm. definitely tends to um, argue in favor of maintaining these silos because people are trying to maximize the return that they can squeeze out of their their market. You know, and no one wants to work for free, and you can't blame them. But uh, this is a big issue. We haven't even begun to discuss the, you know, the, the three words that strike fear in the heart of, of most policy people, which is fee-for-service. I mean, if we talk about the current payment delivery system and how folks receive payment for the care that they deliver, uh, there's not a lot of incentive to do some of the stuff that we're talking about here if you're paid for what you do. Um, we had a study that was published just about a month ago, and it examined, it looked at primary care, and it looked at patients that were presenting in primary care with and without a mental health condition. And what we found is that, on average, patients that were new to the practice in primary care were seen about 20 minutes or so. If they had a mental health condition on top of that, they were seen about five minutes longer. And this doesn't matter if it's a new patient or an established patient. So if we think about this a little bit further and we say in a current fee-for-service environment where time arguably is one of the most important things that is looked at, how quickly can you see that patient? How quickly can that patient come in, you do your thing, and then move on to the next patient? If we look at redesigning healthcare, specifically within something like the patient-centered medical home, and we look at the opportunity, opportunities to integrate mental health services and include that as a, a part of an essential health benefits redesign, we can actually save time. We can show how integrating saves time in that fragmented, flawed fee-for-service setup. So I can make a business case to you purely based on the amount of time that a mental health provider could save a primary care provider in a primary care setting seeing patients who may have a mental health condition. That's in the fee-for-service world. Now, if we change that and we said, okay, here's your lump sum of money. Do what you need to do to take care of every need of that patient. 
I can, I, 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 I mean, we can put our teams together and let's compare. Um, I'm going to bring in a mental health provider. That's going to be one of the first things that I bring in because I know that that right there will meet so many of the needs of the population that I'm serving that it won't even be a question as to what I do with the, those dollars. So have we compared uh, relative outcomes in a, say, integrated system that has maybe a capitated or population-based focus like Kaiser, as an example, or Intermountain, versus a episodic, uh, fee-for-service driven, is, can, can we demonstrate you know, a differential there in terms of outcomes based on the payment mechanism? That's a great question, and I think this is one that we're going to have to answer in order to make recommendations around policy for integration. So let's look at some of those integrated systems, and here's where language kind of confuses us a little bit, Greg. Uh, you referred to Kaiser and Intermountain. I mean, we could talk about integrated care delivery systems or integrated health care delivery systems like those. When, I, when most people talk about integrated care in my world, they're referring to mental health, and they may you know, nod to the Kaisers, nod to the Intermountains of the world, but really they're talking about integrating mental health. So it's a little bit of a uh, confusing discussion here, but to answer your question, let's study this one. Let's answer those questions. If we do integrate, how much money does it save if it's a capitated system, like a, a, an integrated system, a delivery system, or if it's not? Do we save money at the end of the day when we compare these two systems together? Now, the reality is always going to be that uh, some of these integrated delivery systems aren't going to be able to be replicated in certain parts of the country. And if we look at uh, Colorado is a good example of this. Colorado, we have Denver. We have some very large cities, but then we have tons of rural areas. How are you going to meet the needs of those populations in the rural settings? What are you going to do to address those? ACOs can really enter into this conversation a little bit nicely when it comes to taking care of regions. And Colorado's got a wonderful Accountable Care Collaborative initiative that it's currently undergoing that I would encourage uh, those listening to Google as well to look at to see what we are doing in a very uh, timely rollout for our ACO initiative. But really, we have to stop at where, where can we actually go with this? What part of the integrated delivery system can I replicate in my setting? And then, again, it's an empirical question. Let's study the outcomes and let's study the cost. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also, as you were talking, I'm actually trying to Google that Accountable Care Colorado Initiative. Um, yeah, you can't. There's no cookie cutter here, obviously. And there's, as you pointed out, there's there's operational, there's financial, and there's um, payment issues in, in, in any footprint you try to superimpose on any community. But uh, the general principle here would, would be that it's more of a population focus and it's care integration, both mental health and general acute care, even chronic care management. It's the whole pie, and it's and it's yes, it's saving money, but it's improved outcomes and improved uh, patient satisfaction. It seems like yeah. when you're taking more of a global perspective here, it's really about doing what's right for the patient, you know, in this situation to optimize the outcome. And um, are we there yet? No. Are the pilots and demonstrations sort of nibbling at the edges here? Absolutely. Do we need to do something? Hell yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, let's get on with it, you know. <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, when you hear that, I mean, you just made a very compelling case as to why we should do this, and let's get on with it. The question then becomes, well, why haven't we got on with it? Why hasn't this happened? Despite 20-plus years of research, despite decades longer of understanding that the mind and the body are inseparable, why have we not done this better? 
And I think that it's both a philosophical question and a very realistic question that we have to ask ourselves right now. And I think it speaks to the difficulty in turning this massive ship known as healthcare that is set up, again, based on silos, based on fragmentation. And you talk about consolidating, integrating, collaborating, better coordinating. You're talking about changing personalities here. You're talking about it's not just can you lose five pounds, Miss Smith. It's Miss Smith, I'd like you to go home. I'd like you to, to redo your entire house, and I'd like you to change your name and start acting like a different person. That is what we're proposing for healthcare. That is why integration of mental health is complicated. The systems that are currently set up perpetuate that fragmentation unintentionally because of the, merely the way that they are designed. Why policymakers need to be aware of this now is if healthcare is to become more efficient, if healthcare is to become more effective, if healthcare is to become more patient centered, we need to be better integrated. So let me let me come at it with a slightly different thought. Um, you know, again, you're in an academic setting that that's reaching out into the community. And oh, by the way, thank you for the tweet. I found that Accountable Care Collaborative on, on Google as well. So we put that into the Twitter stream. But um, you know, academic uh, initiatives are often looked at as well. They'll never get their act together. They're too political. They're too costly, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. And uh, two weeks ago at the ACO Summit, a uh, major event back in Washington, uh, Johns Hopkins was there showing off their capabilities in managed healthcare and accountable care per se. And one of the stats that the, the, that they quoted was uh, in terms of their de facto accountable care organization operation, they were actually quoting premiums that were below their commercial competitors. And they were putting together, um, you know, statistics showing uh, utilization and cost savings and quality improvement. So, you know, don't count the academics out. Clearly, they're, they're on the cutting edge of the, at least the potential for innovation. And if it's a manpower issue, it's going to be the new docs who are coming out on the front end who has this group practice orientation, this population management uh, paradigm, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to say this in response to you there. I mean, I think the academic institutions uh, have some of the flexibility to be able to research some of this and to partner with state agencies, state leadership, to work together collaboratively for the benefit of the state. And sometimes it's leveraging resources, whether that be grant dollars, whether that be the time that's allocated to actually do the work for research. Um, I see it as a nice marriage. I see it as when you can have an academic institution who can partner then with the state, who can then partner with the community, everybody listening to one another. To me, I don't see how that's a, a bad thing. I see that as only beneficial for everyone. Um, I just uh, I tweeted out a couple of things that we've discussed so far today, and I want to make sure that I uh, say those before I uh, send out some more tweets. But we sent out the national research agenda that I alluded to from ARC just now. Um, we also I also sent out the Accountable Care Collaborative, as you mentioned, and I'm about to send out a state law that was recently signed by the governor here in Colorado called House Bill 1242, which really challenges the state to consider what happens when you integrate mental health. And it, it specifically charges the state Medicaid office to examine integration. 
and you'll see that here in just a second. To me, this is a wonderful first step for our state to begin to look at some of the costs associated with fragmentation. And again, the economic analysis of what happens when you can integrate. All of this is, it's like dancing a beautiful dance. It's totally in tandem with the medical home efforts and the accountable care collaborative effort that's happening in our state. Well, Ben, as as I predicted here, we're flying through our, our scheduled time, and uh, it's been awesome information. Uh, please do make note of that. Uh, that's news to me. Uh, definitely a state law to watch. Maybe it will be um, uh, essentially a living laboratory for uh, answering some of the questions we've had today. So uh, any any very quick last thoughts before we wrap up? No, I just, those of you that are listening to this who are interested in the topic, there are uh, several different entities that are out there that are committed to seeing this happen. Uh, Touchbase, connect through Twitter. Uh, Google is an amazing tool to find anybody these days. So if this is a topic that's of interest to you and your community is interested in how best to integrate mental health into PCMH and ACOs, please reach out. There is a, a larger group that's willing to help. Well, that's a wrap for today's broadcast awesome information. I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Ben Miller, for his timely and rather unique insights. We do this weekly at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern. You can listen live via archived replay or subscribe to the broadcast via an RSS feed using Google or any other feed burner. So thanks for listening. Please join us next week for another edition of ACO Watch, a midweek review. Bye now.
But that was when I ruled the world 